Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Luke 2, verses 1 to 7. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. The accounts of Jesus' birth provide detail about the political and social reality into which he was born. So we see that Caesar Augustus takes a worldwide census. Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And Joseph, as a descendant of David, would have to go to Bethlehem. That is, these political, cultural strictures were pressing upon the parents of Jesus. And when we consider this world into which Christ was born, in which the emperor, Augustus Caesar, is worshipped as absolute sovereign, in which the state is the determiner, really, of reality, of universal power. We understand the threat that Christ posed, the accusations that will be brought about against him from his birth and at his death. The accusation of insurrection at his trial would make him the disturber of the peace, the disturber of the Pax Romana, that is, the peace of Rome or the challenger to the monopolistic sovereignty of imperial Rome. Given Roman presuppositions about the emperor as divine sovereign, the state of Rome as the determiner of justice and the instrument of peace, the sort of alternative, the truth that Christ would pose, it is indeed, it will challenge, it is a challenge to the political the economic, the religious, and the social order of Rome and of Israel. And interwoven throughout the birth narratives is the threat to this world's kingdoms that Christ and his kingdom will pose. And that Christ is really an alternative, an alternative kingdom, an alternative reality, an alternative order. There is the worldwide census. There is the Roman threat. And even locally, there is the Jewish Herod. If we look at Matthew 2, 16 to 18, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children 
who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Was Herod right or was he wrong in his fear that Christ would usurp his reign? Though the Jewish notion that the Messiah would defeat Rome through violent insurrection, and they pictured the Messiah as leading this revolution, though that is mistaken, I think it was not a mistake to understand that the Messiah would usher in a different kingdom and a different order of truth and reality. Christ would indeed break the Jewish-Roman monopoly on truth, and the way he would accomplish this would involve politics. That is, Jesus would be king. It involved government and power, that he will have the government upon his shoulders, as it says in Isaiah. It would involve economics. Christians, we see, the early Christians would share among themselves. Uh, they were communalists. They would render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and no more. So I think it involves every sphere, all of these realms. And the ultimate thing, it involves religion, that Christ is the divine Son of God. And so the difference between the truth of Christ and the truth of Rome, and even the truth of Israel, though Christ is fulfilling Israel's truth or Israel's purpose, I think it involves every sphere of what it means to be human. The social, the political, the cultural, the religious order. These things are not removed from what constitutes reality. But each of these play into the structuring of the world. To be Christian will involve entering a different order of reality, a different kingdom. The truth of Christ sets free. The picture is that there is a wholesale delusion that is called Roman imperialism. But isn't it the case that this monopoly on truth, on power, on divinity that is claimed by Rome, isn't that the permanent condition of the kingdoms of this world? You know, it's true that Rome exercised a more universal power perhaps than any other state that came after but isn't it the case that throughout history no matter the size of the tribe or the country that they all would exercise the same sort of monopoly and even the determination of what is reality you know I use the example of North Korea think of communist China think of the former Soviet Union or maybe perhaps more difficult for us to see, think of the United States of America. That communism and fascism would obviously exercise a monopoly on the nature of reality. But doesn't secularism, individualism, capitalism represent the same sort of monopolistic claims on reality, the same sort of claim and value that imperial Rome would exercise. 
and we can readily understand that it may be contradictory, you know, to call ourselves Nazi Christians or fascist Christians or a Leninist Christian. But is it any less contradictory to be a capitalistic Christian, an individualistic Christian, a secular Christian, or to say the same thing, an American Christian? That is secularism, individualism, autonomous rationalism, or capitalism. They are no more accommodating to Christian truth than Roman imperialism. Or to say it the other way around, to be grounded in these things, to be grounded in fascism, capitalism, rational individualism, is to be deluded in regard to ultimate reality, which we know is the truth of Christ. So the delusion that the truth of Christ sets us free from is a delusion about the nature of reality that this world and its kingdoms foist upon us. Now what I'm describing is not in fact the majority understanding about the nature of truth and about the nature of the truth of Christ. And many in our day imagine that Christian truth is meant to supplement other forms of truth. Rather than Christ constituting his own kingdom, his own people or his own reality, Christ is often used and is being used to support the kingdoms of this world. And maybe one, and certainly not the only one, the expression of this is the far-right politicians of our day in the United States, but around the world. They're advocating a church-state alliance like that we find in a Constantinian Christianity. And you know, what is the Christian morality that they would impose? Well, very often it's oppression of immigrants, oppression of feminists, repression of religious minorities that would be implemented by these Christian politicians. The Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, maintains the nation should reclaim its Christian identity and that the notion of separation of church and state, oh, that's a myth. And the truth, maybe there is a bit of truth behind this misunderstanding, is the feeling that Christianity has been disempowered. There's a disempowerment of the faith. This was actually the New York Times read an article that says that many evangelicals would dismiss the historic American principle of the separation of church and state. And this is occurring in conjunction with the blending of Christian faith with notions of election fraud conspiracies, QAnon conspiracies, gun rights, and anger over COVID-related restrictions. So according to Representative Lauren Boebert, the church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. She says, I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. Jenna Ellis, a former co-counsel for the Trump campaign's effort to run the 2020 election, she told an audience, the same audience, that what it really means to truly be America first, what it truly means to pursue happiness, what it truly means to be a Christian nation, oh, these are all actually the same thing. And what is being advocated is a return then to a fusion of state and religion, a Constantinian form of the faith in which the church is an arm of the state and Christian power is expressed through state power. That's the situation in which we live 
And I think if we have the eyes to see that this is as hostile to the peace of Christ as that thing that would be instituted, the Pax Romana of Imperial Rome. And maybe it's even more insidious in that it deploys Christian language. But Christian nationalism is taking root, not just in the United States. You know, in uh, Hungary, Viktor Orban, he's uh, attacked race mixing. In Poland, there's the Christian Nationalist Party, a right-wing party that's taken hold. In Brazil, President Bolsonaro, he's called indigenous peoples parasites, and he's promoted the burning of the Amazon basin to wipe them out. He calls Hitler a great strategist, and he believes Brazil is a Christian country. And he spent the last four years, as he terms it, as the Trump of the tropics. And now he's denying his defeat in the last election. His key support is Brazilian evangelicals. Giorgio Maloney in Italy, the new prime minister, campaigned under the slogan, Italy and Italians first. And her party, the Brothers of Italy, is the successor of the neo-fascist Italian socialist movement. And they're following the 1926 fascist doctrine. We have to protect state, family, morality, and economy. And she's a Christian nationalist. She's praised Mussolini and promised to defend God, country, and family. And she's proposed a naval blockade against migrants. She says yes to the natural family, yes to the universality of the cross, no to mass migration. The point is that there is a misunderstood Christianity. The theological problem and solution is not really concerned with right-wing or left-wing politics, but it's really concerned with conceding the embodied reality of what it means to be a Christian to the dictates of the state. There is a privatization of religion. I may, maybe it's just part of liberal democracy that squeezes out the notion of an alternative kingdom, an alternative citizenship, an alternative embodiment in the church. And so part of the importance of linking Israel and Jesus as sitting on the throne of David is to recognize that all that Israel was, the church completes. That Israel was a politic with its king. Israel was a government. Israel was a culture, a distinct culture, resistant to the kingdoms of this world. Israel, of course, failed in terms of salvation, but did not fail in terms of ushering in the true kingdom that would complete the identity of Israel. So the New Testament is written against this backdrop in Second Temple Judaism. The view of the kingdom that's there, the restoration of Israel that was hoped for, the restoration of the Davidic kingdom, and the intervention of God in history, that's the significance, I think, of the political, social order that is described in the birth narratives. Most Jews and Jewish sources imagine a restoration of Israel and either a destruction of the nations or a gathering of the nations. But of course, Jesus is in this tradition. He associates his own person and ministry 
with the kingdom of God, with the coming kingdom, with the Son of Man. He uses phrases again and again that link him with this picture that a new kingdom is being ushered in. And he indicates that he perceives that God is intervening through who he is. He is the agent of that intervention. Matthew 4.17, from that time he began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 11, 11 to 12, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Here is the culmination of the kingdom of Israel. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is greater than the kingdom of Israel. It's the completion of Israel. From the days of John the Baptist and then until now, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. There is the clue, the difference. Christ's kingdom differs from this world's kingdoms in that it's instituted by peace. It's instituted for peace and by peace. The kingdoms of this world in Jesus' description are marked by violence. The threat of death provides a kind of political arrangement of people in which they have nothing in common perhaps but the fear of death, death in war, death at the hands of the state or death at the hands of a perceived enemy that the state protects you from. It lends the state something like a sacred responsibility. And the secular order can dictate or presume to dictate matters of life and death, creating the equivalent of the sacred, ordering life around death. The state controls the body through the body of state, disciplining and punishing and controlling. Yet the claim of Christ is that we are saved by becoming part of his body, part of his kingdom and that he is determinative of our reality. And this means that Jesus can only be fully known, only fully encountered in people who call him Lord and King and who are ordered by his kingdom. We have to embody and be embodied in his kingdom. So liberal democracy in the name of secularism like totalitarianism, fascism, or nationalism, it may function like a religion in its determination of people's loyalties, of their embodied existence. And maybe this is no more true than with the power of nuclear holocaust or the potential of nuclear holocaust. It takes, the state takes on an almost metaphysical power, an eternal value. And never before, I think, has this power been so absolute and this monopoly on the power of death and destruction been so blatant. That is that imperial Rome pales in comparison. And so set aside is any notion of serving a higher good or a law that transcends the state. So the law of survival, state self-determination, state sovereignty. Maybe it's just written into the power of mutually assured destruction. So Christian salvation is precisely concerned to defeat the state monopoly on the power of life through its control of death and destruction.
That's the way they would control Jesus. They would kill him. They would destroy him. The Christian faith, counter to this, makes absolute claims about the nature of reality. And it revolves around Christ's defeat of death. Our conceding life together, political life, economic life, sexual life. It's to concede that it's under the control of state power. It's to concede the Christian truth. I believe this is the lie that Christ confronted. And this is why he was a threat to Herod. He was a threat to Pilate. He was a threat to Augustus Caesar. His birth is a threat. His life is a threat. And this threat comes out in his trial. And with the resurrection, the state monopoly on the power of death is defeated. There is no truth more determinative of reality than Jesus crucified and raised. And this truth is necessarily attached to the shape of his kingdom and the way that it holistically embodies who we are. I believe this is the significance of Mary's song. Look at Luke 1, verse 53. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Here is the true historical fulfillment of Israel. His work is in history, yet he demonstrates God's rule over time and history. His truth is specifically attached you know, to being who he is, a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. This is his particular story. His truth cannot be relegated to something ahistorical, to the abstract. It cannot be privatized. It cannot be made to serve another story, like the story of the nation state, the story of imperial Rome, the story of liberal democracy, the story of America. This is the lie not only of the secular state, this is the lie of capitalism, individualism, but it is the lie that he confronted in both Rome and Israel to the degree that Israel had bought into the same lie. Both would obliterate, kill, and control him so that Rome could be great again or to prove the absoluteness of Israel. So it's truth and reality that are in contention in the life of Christ, in his death, in his resurrection. And where life is deployed to make America great again, to make Rome great again, to legitimize the worst forms of oppression, there is a, a theological failure to recognize that Christ constitutes a kingdom. And only in the living community of the church, the community shaped by the politics of Jesus, shaped by the culture that he would institute, shaped by the tradition of Jesus, only there do we encounter the fully embodied Christ. So the incarnation continues through the church, right? But the church is only the church where his people are fully formed as part of his body. That is, the body of state, the body of liberal democracy, or the body of death has no part in the embodiment of Christ.
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. It is not the nation that disciples Christ, but Christ calls the nations to his kingdom. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.